Well, Chris and, uh, and, and Meredith, we just want to thank you both for singing that song. The phrase that kind of stands out to me in reference to our series is clinging to his mercies. And uh, that was a song that Chris composed, and uh, we really are grateful to be having the chance to hear that today. And we've got one more at the end of the message for you that uh, they'll be singing for us as well. But again, uh, what do you say we pray and just ask God to guide our time here together? Lord, we just want to thank you for this day, this opportunity to be here. And uh, Lord, we just tell you, we uh, love you for all the blessings you bring into our life. And we love you for what you've done to provide salvation for us. And Father, we're just so grateful. You've been in the midst of our trials uh, and thankful even in the midst of our trials, that you are ever there. And Lord, uh, guide us today as we roll up our sleeves here and continue uh, just really wrapping up, though, the series on Galatians. And so we do commit this time to you uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, um, this, the book of Galatians is really a great series. I've really gotten a lot out of it. And again, thank Greg and Brad for that. And it's uh, one that we're just going to really wrap up today. I guess you like that TV show, is that your final answer? Uh, I guess you could say, is this your final message, you know, on this uh, series? Because we'll be wrapping it up here kind of for the second time, last week and this week besides. And do you all remember uh, the theme? If there's one thing you were to walk away from from this series, would just be to know the theme of this book, of Galatians. It's kind of nice to know the themes of different books. And uh, it's actually on this first slide. This theme is really Jesus plus nothing is everything. A corollary might be Jesus plus anything is nothing. But if you just remember this phrase, Jesus plus nothing is everything, you really have the theme summarized for this book of Galatians. I'd like you to repeat that with me. I'm going to ask the question. You tell me what the theme of Galatians is. What is the theme of Galatians? Jesus plus nothing. One more time. Jesus plus nothing. Try to remember that because if you do, uh, you'll really remember what this book is all about. And you might ask, well, why was that the theme? Why was Paul uh, writing this, uh, these thoughts, these words with that theme in mind? Well, to understand that, we need to understand the author, Paul, who wrote this, and really a little bit about his times, the times that he lived in. And so for that, uh, we take a look at first Paul's life and what an amazing individual Paul was. His name originally was Saul, which means called one. It became changed as many in biblical times were when some event happened in a person's life. They might change their name. In this case, Saul became Paul. Not because they rhyme, they have a different meaning. Paul means little one. And so the great called one became a little one uh, who really laid his life down. Jesus put it this way when he called Saul or Paul. He said, I'm going to show you just how much you're going to have to suffer for my sake. And that's really what Paul's life uh, uh, was a, a lot about, suffering for the cause of Christ. But when we look at Paul in his own words from Galatians chapter 1 verse 14 that Greg introduced to us a number of weeks ago, Paul wrote this about his own life. 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Basically, Paul, you know, he wasn't bragging. He was just stating the fact. I'm the best Jew in Israel today. I am the best Jew there is in this nation of Israel. That's who Paul was. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious leader. And all the Jews, even the leaders among them, all the other Pharisees, looked to Paul as one of their leaders. And he was indeed passionate. Remember, he was uh, there when Stephen, the first recorded martyr of Christianity in the Bible, was martyred. And it was said that all the people throwing stones at Stephen to kill him laid their coats at a young man's feet by the name of Saul. Saul was the ringleader of that event, the execution of the first Christian martyr. Paul was there for that event and really was looked to as the leader among those people. Remember, now, Paul was basically Jesus' contemporary. They're about the same age. And so when Jesus was on that cross in the last three years of his ministry, 30 to 33 years of age, Paul was a Pharisee then. He was a young Pharisee. It wasn't many years after that that Stephen was stoned. Remember what Jesus had to say to those Pharisees. There's one passage of scripture where Jesus said, Woe to you Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees. About a half a dozen times, each time given a reason why he was saying, Woe to you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Paul was one of those Pharisees that Jesus was saying, Woe to. That's who this Paul was that wrote this book of Galatians, which just makes it all the more amazing. And so Paul himself was saying how he was more extremely zealous for his ancestral traditions than his contemporaries. And my goodness, that was truly the case. Remember in the book of Acts, meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus which is in Syria, not too far from Jerusalem, really, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, any Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem, where many undoubtedly would have been executed for blasphemy. You know, this is the Paul that God called and saved on the road to Damascus. And it's such an amazing story. So Paul left Jerusalem, and from the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem, in the distance, you can see the glimmer of the Dead Sea, 10 miles away. So he walked down the road that leads from Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is right there by the Dead Sea. He headed north, up the Jordan River, until the Jordan River, just before it reached the Sea of Galilee at the bottom of the picture, you'll see a road that veers to right and connects with the Great Trunk Road, that leads on into Damascus. That was the road to Damascus. That was the road that Paul took. And you can see the red line that he would have taken. These are some of the sites along that path. This was the road to Damascus, going through a little village, now in utter ruins. Here's another view of the road to Damascus, just kind of the wilderness there. But Damascus itself wasn't so much in a wilderness. It was actually quite pretty in a valley here. Damascus lies between these two hills. And when Paul saw those two hills in a distance, he knew he was getting close to Damascus. His goal, where there were a lot of Christians living in Damascus, which is right in the middle of those two hills, and his goal was to capture those folks, make them prisoners, and take them back to Jerusalem. That was Paul's mission. 
But you remember that story we read and uh, where he, on the road to Damascus, uh, saw the great light. And uh, he fell off his horse. And he heard the voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord, that I'm persecuting? He said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Go into Damascus and stay at a home of a guy named Ananias. And he did for three days, and ultimately Paul became a Christian. Paul entered Damascus in this route, from the right to the left, going through that valley. So it was right there, somewhere where that arrow is, that that great light appeared, and he fell off of his horse. And he cried out to God and was given the instructions to go into Damascus. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Boy, it took something this great probably to save someone that impassioned in Judaism. And Paul became a Christian. And for three years, he isolated himself in Arabia where he could just simply study and get his Christian uh, moorings and really establish himself in his faith and tried to decide how to live out the rest of his life. He was no longer going to be a Pharisee. That's a big career change for a guy who's about 45 years of age at this time. So what is he going to be doing? Well, he decided, I'm going to be a missionary. And I'm going to share what I have learned from Jesus with as many people world over as I possibly can. And it was really Paul who took Judaism from kind of a, a religion, a Christianity from a kind of a subset of Judaism in Israel. And he really kind of made it into a world religion. And he started by reaching into a little province of what we know today as Turkey. It's in the south central portion of Turkey. And that province with four major cities, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. That province of those four cities is known as Galatia. It was originally settled by the Gauls. Uh, from which was France, mostly Celtics. In fact, this is crazy, but the people of Galatia spoke the Celtic language, many of them, the original settlers there, uh, just like they spoke in Ireland, many that went from Gaul into Ireland as well. And so it's an interesting area, interesting people. That was the path he took. After he came back from Arabia, he moved to Antioch in Syria, went to Seleucia along the coastline, set sail for Cyprus, went into those two towns on Cyprus, Salamis, Paphos, and then on up to Turkey, or Asia Minor then, and into Galatia. And the book of Acts talks all about this journey and everything that happened in each of those towns. And that was his first missionary journey. It was really a good journey, an apropos journey, because it was close to his home in Antioch. It was even closer to the home he grew up in, which was Tarsus, that, uh, with the blue arrow there. That's where Paul was born and raised. So Galatia was really just in his backyard. He could relate to those people. He knew those people. And uh, those were the people that he went to on his first missionary journey. Three missionary journeys would follow before Paul would have his head cut off by Nero. And there is a problem, though, that he faced. And that was Judaizers. These were people who would accept Christ all right. They would say they did, but they would add. They were really Jews, but they would add, you also have to obey the laws of Judaism. You have to be a Jew to be a Christian, is what they were saying. 
And they followed Paul. If you looked at their pathway, they would go on the same path that Paul went on. Their missionary journey would look just like Paul's because they followed him everywhere he went. And everywhere they went, they tried to discredit him. They tried to neutralize what he was saying. And they tried to present a different gospel, which was Jesus plus anything. Of course, we know that is nothing, right? And Paul tried to make it clear to the people that he was writing this letter, it's Jesus plus nothing is everything. The Judaizers had a different message, though. They wanted the people there in Galatia to get circumcised. Many of them were Gentiles that Paul reached out to here. That was part of the Jewish legal system. Men were to be circumcised. That was something everybody had to do if you're going to go to heaven. And so those were the kinds of things these Judaizers were saying. You see, they didn't understand. They had lost sight over the centuries, really a couple millennium. They had lost sight that salvation always was, is, and always will be by faith alone in God's promise to us, whatever that promise was. For Adam and Eve, God gave them a promise right after they said sinned. God, Adam and Eve were told, the child born of this woman, that child is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel in Genesis 3.15. And so that promise became the focus of faith. And Adam and Eve placed their faith in this coming child. And Seth was that child. They sensed it. They named him appointed one. You know, Abel's name was vanity, meant vanity. But they sensed this seed was in, that, was in Seth. And that's, uh, again, the promise they had. They didn't have much more, but by placing faith in what God did reveal to them, that faith saved them. Abraham, the same way, he was given a promise, and he was told, your descendants will be like the, the stars of the sky. Genesis chapter 12, 1, 2, and 3. And it was said that because Abraham believed God for that promise, Abraham was declared righteous in God's eyes, in faith in that promise. And as the centuries rolled, unraveled, more and more was revealed from God to mankind, as mankind was ready for those revelations, where the Messiah would be born, Bethlehem. The Messiah would be God in human flesh. A child will be born to us. His name will be Eternal Father, Almighty God, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. That was in Isaiah. So much more was revealed to us until ultimately Jesus came. But these Judaizers, they saw the law as an end to themselves, not as a means to an end. The law was never could accomplish anything spiritually in terms of our relationship with God. The law only condemns us, points out that we fall short of God, helping us see our need for God's promise that we're to believe in. But the Jews, the Judaizers, uh, they didn't see, they lost sight. They thought it was through the adherence to these laws that they would have eternal life. You know, they failed to reconcile a God-ordained change in dispensation. That's a word I don't even like to use that much because, you know, I, I don't know. It's just kind of a difficult word. But I think it's important to have some sense of what a dispensation is and what that really means. And in your notes, I just have a few bullet points about that. Dispensation is the way God deals with people during any period of history. God never changes, but his methods might. You know, it says in Hebrews 1-2 that God made the ages. 
You know, even in secular history, there are ages. You know, some would say on October 31st, 1517, over a one-hour lunch break, a thousand years of the Middle Ages came to an end. And the beginning of the Reformation started over a one-hour lunch break. Do you know what that lunch break was? It was when Martin Luther nailed 95 propositions on the Wittenberg church door, October 31st, 1517. That lunch break, according to many, brought an end of an age, a thousand years, the Middle Ages, and opened up another age, the Reformation. Didn't last as long. So there are ages, even in secular history, but the ages we're talking about might be uh, different ages that God has ordained and established throughout biblical history some would say there are no dispensations i like the word administration it's almost like uh, it fits with our concept of presidents you know you have the obama administration uh, maybe the reagan administration they were quite different from one another Uh, but it's just the way god set up government to relate to and 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 work with mankind on earth and there's these different governments or administrations in different times some uh, when they say there is no dispensations it's really hard to kind of understand what certain things in the old testament why god put them there even uh, but certainly it seems clear there's two administrations old testament new testament uh, or the law and grace Some would say, well, if there's the law, we start with Moses. What about Adam to Moses? Well, then that would be a dispensation. That's three. There's the present age and there's the future age. Some will say the future age is a fourth. There's different ways of looking at it. Schofield has seven of them. Who knows how many per se. But in each of these different ages, uh, God dealt differently with people. For example, Cain. When Cain had killed his brother Abel, God punished him by sending him away from from the people he had been living with. Cain uh, was marked by God in some fashion so that people would know that this is Cain and God would punish us if we hurt Cain. God did not want people implementing their own uh, vendettas against Cain. But then later... When government came, and Schofield has human government as one of the dispensations. He goes from innocence, Adam and Eve, to their fall, then conscience, and then human government. But when human government was established, that's when human government was given the right for capital punishment. And they were given the right to execute people who commit murder. And that didn't occur, though, until that stage of God's development of his earthly plan. So these different dispensations. How about Leviticus 11 with food? God gave different food laws. Don't eat this, don't eat that. They may not have known that if you eat pork, you'd get trichinosis. They may not have known that. But there is a reason why God gave that law. To protect the people. He was responsible into parleying into a nation known as Israel from whom the Messiah would come. The Old Testament, the story of that nation. The New Testament, the story of the Messiah, that nation birthed to save the world from its sins. And so in Mark 7, though, Mark records a dream where all things are okay to eat now in this age of grace. So God never changes, but his methods and how he relates to people 
They did change over time, from time to time. And not everything written in the book and the Bible relates directly to all people of all time. It may relate directly to the people of that dispensation. And, of course, there's people that become ultra-dispensationalists where they will even look at the New Testament and say, well, you know... We're going to make a dispensation where, you know, where in Paul's, when Paul was in prison epistles and when he wasn't in prison. And so everything when he was in prison relates to us and everything. Now, you know, it gets complicated then. But there is something to be said for these periods of time. And the Judaizers failed to realize that there was a new period with the coming and advent of Jesus that they were now embarking upon. It was so challenging to a Jew that even Peter himself fell into this mindset of Judaism that suggested laws were important, Gentiles were dirty, it's good to separate them. In fact, a bunch of uh, Christian leaders went to Antioch to meet with Peter and others that were there. And they noticed that when those Jewish leaders came from Jerusalem, Paul was there with Peter he noticed that Peter would not eat with the Gentiles. He'd just hang out with the Jewish leaders and with Jews. And it was such a concern, and Galatians records this, uh, Brad or Greg addressed it, but they had to confront Peter publicly because of his own hypocrisy. The great Peter. But Paul was the man who could do it and did do it and said that, Peter, what you're doing is wrong here. And so that gives you some sense of things. But regardless, one thing similar to all dispensations is the gospel message is the same. Salvation has been, is now, and always will be by faith. People in the Old Testament were never saved by keeping the law or offering animal sacrifices. And though it was hard for them to understand it, Paul was in a position, because it was hard for them to understand it, where he had to correct what they were trying to dismantle of Paul's efforts. And he had to help these Galatians, who he went and talked to and then left, and then these Judaizers came in. He had to write in this letter to help them understand that it's Jesus plus nothing, no human effort on our part, is salvation, is everything. Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus anything is nothing. Paul wrote it to the Galatians. He wrote it to the Romans. He wrote it to the Ephesians. Part of understanding this theme of Galatians is understanding the consequence of sin. Romans says the wages of sin, what you get for sinning is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. What you get for sin isn't a sickness, isn't being ill, you know, so where in your last ounce of energy, you know, you kind of reach out there and save yourself, you're dead. I mean, you're not sick, you're dead. Uh, Paul went on and told that of the Ephesians too. You guys were dead, spiritually speaking now, in your sins and trespasses in which you formerly walked. If you're dead, spiritually, only God can make you alive. There is nothing you can do. That's why Jesus plus nothing is everything. Because it's only what Jesus did. You're dead. There's nothing you can do if you're dead. You may be alive physically. But if you're dead spiritually, nothing you can do can make your spirit alive with the living God. Nothing. You're dead. And that's the consequence of sin. Even physical death will ultimately occur as a consequence of Adam and Eve's first sin. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. And so, a few verses, and I'm going to read through these fairly fast. Uh, 
You may want to just write down the address. Some of the things Paul was writing, not just to the Galatians, but to others to help them understand this. Jesus plus nothing is everything. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you, these Judaizers, for example, then what you receive from me, let him be accursed. That's how strongly Paul felt about this. And in one passage in Galatians, he said, let them be cut off. And that was just the author's nice way of putting that into an English vernacular that didn't seem outrageous. Because in the Greek, that cut off was literally, let them be castrated. If you insist that these people be circumcised, look, I just wish those folks that say that would be castrated. You know, just take the whole, you know, kit and caboodle. Because, you know, (laughs) because I don't even want you to be reproductive in any way. You can take that analogy how far you want to. But if anyone preaches a gospel, let him be accursed. If you become circumcised, if you think that's one of the elements that you need to employ because you think you're sick, you don't realize you're dead. Well, then that's one way you get to heaven is by obeying the law perfectly. But if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, he's got to keep the whole law perfectly. Otherwise, God's provision is laid out there for you, which is the death of his son on that cross. I like this one. Again, from Galatians, many of these verses are. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I will not set aside the grace of God, which is Christ dying on the cross, giving his salvation freely. That's grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. In other words, well, this verse also, he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In God's economy, the death of the infinitely perfect God himself on that cross is satisfaction for a finite number of sins. The satisfaction for a finite. There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condemnation has already been paid. God's justice has been satisfied requiring death for sin. Jesus died paying that penalty in his justice God demands. God is infinitely just and he cannot compromise that justice. Even his infinite love cannot compromise his infinite justice. But at the cross both his love and his justice were perfectly satisfied. Justice in that the death for sin was paid. Love in that he didn't have to do it. He did it because he loves us. That's why he died on the cross. So God could maintain the integrity of who he was and his, his very character by dying on the cross for us. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God's provision for the world. Paul understood it, and that's why he decided to become a missionary to the world. 
Even imagine going into those streets of Athens where, where I've been, Julie and I have been there, and you walk down those streets and you see all these statues, even to this day, of all these Greek gods that they worship in Paul's day. Imagine going into that culture. They killed Socrates because he didn't believe in those gods. Imagine going into this culture as Paul to let them know that there's salvation in no one else but Jesus. What a challenge that would be. But Paul knew it had to be done. And so if I were to summarize it, I love it summarized in this fashion. See, my, there it goes. Christ died for me. Christ died as me. So when you see that cross in the background there, and you see Jesus on the cross, do you ever think about it? That's you. That is just like you died on that cross. Jesus died for you. Jesus died as you so that that death now becomes yours your payment for your sin which allows you then to enter into heaven Jesus plus nothing is everything if you add something to this then you're under obligation to keep the whole law Jesus plus anything is nothing that's what Paul's message was to these Galatians now, I spoke a few weeks back, and I showed you this picture. I know we have an airplane pilot here today, a couple of them, Robert, Kenneth. Uh, this was the first view I saw of Hawaii when I was in college. Uh, this wasn't taken by me. I just Googled this picture, but that's just exactly what it looked like. And I thought, oh, cool, there's Hawaii. I'm going to spend the summer there. And this is actually Mauna Kea sticking up above the cloud line. I thought it was probably going to be a cloudy day, you know. I didn't realize there was two miles underneath this clouds to the ground below. I thought what I was looking at was the island of Hawaii. I thought that was it. When we went underneath the clouds, we whited out for a while. Then, then all of a sudden, the clouds dissipated. And I saw below this beautiful green expanse massive expanse of this beautiful island and I was so thrilled I'm going to live here for a summer and I just couldn't believe myself much of what we've done so far in this series is really just talked about the top of the mountain peak here trust in Jesus understanding that Jesus you know really is plus nothing is everything that's just kindergarten stuff I mean, for me, I really have to work at that, though. I'm still in kindergarten, I think. But it's not easy to grasp what I know. But there's so much more to the Christian faith. There's so much more under those clouds that God wants us to walk in and to experience as Christians. Yes, he wants us to trust him, as we've learned in this series. Trust Jesus only. But he also wants us to entrust our lives to Christ every day, every aspect. And that's not always easy to do. So when I think of entrusting myself, there's a few things that come to my mind. The warning, the laughable, the vine, and the adventure. And in terms of each, briefly, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commands, his judgments, his statutes, which I command you today. There's blessing and obedience, not as a means to salvation, but just in a means to experience blessings on earth. Lest when you have eaten and are full, you built beautiful houses, you dwell in them. When your herds and your flocks multiply, writing to the Jews now as they're coming out of captivity in Egypt, 
And when your herds and your flocks multiply, your silver, your gold multiply, all that you have is multiplied. Your heart is lifted up. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Now, I read that verse and you know who I think of? These Jews certainly have to be careful, don't they? But my goodness, are we any, don't we experience those same things? How many of you live in a house? How many of you have a regular paycheck? How many of you have multiplied your resources? Maybe you have a car. How many of you are going to eat along with everybody else watching the Broncos today 6,000 calories on average in the United States? I will be one of them, I know. I think I actually bring the average, you know, up to 6,000. I mean, I think that's me. (laughs) But, you know, we should never think that this warning only applies to those Jews then. This warning applies to us. We live in such a materialistic world, it's easy for us not to entrust our lives to Jesus. We may trust him for salvation, but do we entrust him for our lives? Be careful, because if you have too much, it's easy not to. There's also the laughable. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who's 90, bear a child? This is what Rich talked about last week, challenging us all to have laughable goals for this year where in looking back a year from now, we'll think, oh my gosh, I can't believe God did that. You know, Julie and I, well, I did this while we were listening to Rich. I showed, talked to Julie later. I jotted down all the laughables this past year in our family. And it feels like we're struggling so much. I mean, talk about being in a position where we've had to entrust our lives to God. I don't feel like we're in that Deuteronomy thing right now. We have been. But this last year is kind of like just crying out to God. But you know what? I came up with 13 laughables. I just couldn't believe. I wouldn't have believed that our son Ryan, uh, you know, a year ago, would have raised support to go full time to become a campus evangelist all over the country. I mean, a year ago, no way. A year and a half ago, Chris, you lived with Ryan back in those days too. I mean, you would think, no, there's things with all of my kids that are kind of laughable. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to go into them for the sake of time. There's some financial things that are laughable that God has done for us this year. But, you know, to be in positions where we begin to trust God and entrust God with our lives, our days, our weeks, our months, believing him for the laughable in our lives. And then, like Rich shared last Sunday, the vine. When I think of entrusting, I think of two words, praying and reading. And Jesus called it abiding, those two things. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And I think of just praying to God, every concern, every uh, obstacle, challenge, trial you're facing, just make it a matter of prayer. And then regularly be reading God's scripture, letting him speak to you just as you are speaking to him. And then finally, the adventure. And on this, I uh, is basically from Psalm 107. And in this, there are four ways God delivered people. One was those in the desert. One was those in prison. One was those in illness. And then finally, was those in a storm. And um, I'd like to just pull this little family history book out. And this was uh, written by my ninth great-grandfather uh, on my mom's side. His name was Johannes Kunkel. And uh, it would be mom's eighth great-grandfather. Usually mom's here on Sunday mornings. 
Uh, by the way, she's decided not to come today because she's hosting a Bronco party. Uh, <laughs> my mom's 100 years old, for those of you that don't know. Uh, but she's got those little cheese ball, uh, Frito, what do you call them, che- che- Cheetos or whatever. You know, with blue napkins, all that kind of stuff. But here's what this, well, what'd you say? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I'll give you the address later, John. I, no. I have carefully inquired into the conditions of what I describe. That I, and this is his journal, 35 pages on his way over from uh, Germany. He was the acting chaplain on the shift, buried 32 people at sea. Uh, partly heard from trustworthy people who were familiar with the circumstances, the fatalities that I suffered on my journey, the evil tricks of the New Landers, which they intended to pay me and my family, as I shall relate hereafter, have awakened the first impulse in me not to keep concealed what I knew of the wretched and grievous condition of those who traveled from Germany to this new land, and the outrageous and merciless proceedings of the Dutch man-dealers and their man-stealing emissaries, I mean the so-called Newlanders, where they steal, as it were, German people under many false pretexts. I don't want to read it all, but I'm going to jump. To the best of my knowledge and ability, I hope, therefore, that my beloved countrymen and all Germany will obtain accurate information as to how far it is to Pennsylvania and how long it takes to get there and what the journey costs and besides what hardships and danger one has to pass through. What takes place when people arrive well or ill in this country and how they are sold and dispersed and finally the nature and condition of the whole land. He goes in another 35 pages. And on the final page he says this. Now thus in America... We will give thanks to God from the bottom of our hearts. And I kissed the ground with joy and took well to heart, Psalm 107, which describes the anguish of the seafarers so faithfully. To the triune God for this great mercy and preservation to praise and thanksgiving rendered now and forevermore. It was just a beautiful expression, I thought, of his uh, of arriving here in the United States. And it's those folks in Psalm 107 that were on the great adventure of jumping into that sea as he did. And they began to experience God's hand in his life. Sometimes we have to stretch beyond our comfort levels into adventures that require we entrust our lives to God. I'd like to close in a prayer. And my prayer will be simply reading a small portion of Psalm 107. And I've asked Chris and Meredith... Uh, to wrap up then uh, a song here as well. So let's close, bow our heads and pray. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and the wonders in the deep. He commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens and they go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like drunken men and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord. They entrust themselves to God in their trouble and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that the waves are still. And then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Lord, I just want to conclude in this prayer that you would help us all not only trust you, but to entrust you with our very lives. 
not allowing materialism to choke us, being committed to prayer and reading the scripture. Father, we want to believe and we also want to entrust and experience the reality of you in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.